we're in the same portion of Scripture that we've been the last couple of weeks, starting again in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And I'm going to read through 4, 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help in these next few minutes. Jesus, please, as we finish these temptations, this this holy conversation, this holy listening to your word, we pray that we would not passively experience this, but actively, even as we are sitting at table with you and having this divine encounter, that you would be sanding down the rough edges of our heart, the the dull areas of our conscience. and making them tender and responsive to your holy presence and our way of navigating the world. Help me to do this. This is a sermon I need to hear uh, as much as preach, and I pray that you would be with us all, that we might be the kind of people who truly reflect your presence and your care for the world uh, in a way that is genuinely godly. But we, we can't do this by our own effort or our own conjuring. Rather, we need um, you to gift us with this, and we need your help even to receive the gift. And so we ask all of this by your help. Battle for us this day against the world, the flesh in us, and the devil. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you probably surmise, we're finishing the temptations of Jesus today. And in a way... This last, this third temptation of Christ is most ultimate. 
It's perhaps, perhaps most dire. It is, for, especially for Jesus, the, the most tempting. Because the first temptation, what was going on? Well, when, in the first temptation, we learned, don't compromise your relationship with God, your faithfulness to the Lord, simply to satisfy your appetites, right? It was just about eating bread. Don't give in to your carnal desires. Resist. Trust. Second temptation was what? Don't test God to prove how blessed, how righteous, how super spiritual you are. All right. But if at the heart of those temptations is this kind of dark strain of being motivated by self-interest. Look, you know, what can you accomplish? What can you do? What can you receive? This last temptation, not so much. In fact, this this third temptation pushes Jesus. It pushes us. It tempts us with this. Can you refuse to do anything that will help other people? All right? Because you see, what's going on here in this temptation? Jesus is offered what? The kingdoms of the world. And what are kingdoms made of? It's not that the focus is not so much on the gold, the silver, all that stuff. Kingdoms are made up of people. And people, these people are made in God's image. And then you think about what was Jesus' mission? Who, who, who was Jesus? What was his task in, in coming to be with us, to dwell with us? John chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10 says that the Son of Man came not to be served as a king, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' whole thing was about loving and serving other people. Jesus came into the world compelled by love. Love to do what God sent him to do. Love of people. To save people. I think about it. Isn't it true? Love at the end of the day, especially as, as, as a congregation that is gathered under the banner of Christ, that Love is ultimately what matters. Love is what holds us together. Love is the bonds that we, we celebrate. It's the reason that we've shown up this morning because we believe that God loves us. It's what keeps us together as a congregation and, and as other Christians. We, we relate to them through the bonds of love. I mean, isn't it right? Like what the Beatles said, all you need is love, right? There's something that's actually true in that, that love is what's going to compel us. It's like that U2 lyric, and I know I'm dating myself with these references, but give me a break, man. There's that, I don't even remember the song, but where uh, um, Bono says, love is a temple. Love the higher law, right? That there's just, there is actually something that seems biblical about that, that love is what God inhabits. Love is what compels God. And so, as we think about this third temptation, where this higher law is enforced love, maybe it would seem legitimate for Jesus to bow, if just for a second, to Satan, if in the end it would mean salvation for people made in the image of God, if it would mean that he would be helping others. And that is the temptation before Jesus in this third temptation. To make his work, his call, his identity in his work and his call, his ministry, his service, the equivalent of God. He's tempted not for himself, but for the sake of others. 
And that's what makes it most tempting for him. And I'd suggest that for a lot of us, that's why this kind of temptation would be most tempting for us as well, doing it for the sake of others. Because as Christians, we're going to undergo this same kind of temptation that we want to see other people served. We want to see ministry succeed. We want to see good works flourish. And we'll be tempted sometimes, even compelled out of some kind of understanding of love, to make sure that gets done. To see those ends, those goals accomplished. But what we learn is that sometimes in doing that, we can actually think we're motivated by love, but be bowing our knee, ironically, tragically, to Satan. Now, what does that look like? Let me just give you one example. When I was in seminary a long time ago, we had a huge problem at the school where I went to. I won't name the school because I don't think it's actually unique to um, Westminster Seminary. I, I named the school. Who cares, right? Um, and the tr- problem was what? Partying too hard? Drag racing? No, it wasn't that. The big problem when I was there was cheating. Cheating, man, that's like one of the commandments, right? That's like easy, no-brainer, you don't cheat. Why do you think that cheating was a problem at seminary, among seminary students, among people who were trained to go on campus to work, people who were trained to be pastors, missionaries, that they were basically stealing, right? Well, the students who are at seminary very often are people who love others. They love ministry, they care for other folks, and yet the chief obstacle for them getting to serve, getting to go to church, getting to go on campus, getting to go into the mission field, is they have to get their degree. They have to pass exams. They have to pass ordination exams. Sometimes those are super hard, super difficult. And so these folks who were cheating, they didn't plan on being cheats on everything in life, just here, just a quick shortcut So that they could then pass and then go on to do really good, powerful, wonderful things to serve the Lord in ministry, in churches. You see, the end and the goal was honorable. But the means, how you get there, the devil is in the details. And all of us have to sort through this as we follow the Lord. Because there's good things that we can set as goals, things that we can read from the very pages of Scripture, and yet we might compromise, even be satanic, if I can use the language of Scripture here, in how we get there. Here would be some of the things that I think maybe we wrestle with. My family's security is of utmost importance to me. I have to protect and value the sanctity of my family. But how do you do that? What do you kick to the side? What do you exclude so that you can make your family like your kingdom? And of course, we're told in Scripture, love, cherish, protect, serve your family. Or this is one, maybe I'm just preaching to myself, my children's education is so important. I want them to succeed. I want them to use the intellectual gifts that God's given them. And yet, Sometimes I'm at least more concerned that they're doing well in school and doing all they can than I'm worried about them being holy and happy in Christ. Or maybe it's this kind of a temptation. 
We want more money for the church. We want more because we want more mission for the church. And that's right, and that's good, and that's wonderful. But how you get there makes all the difference in the world. All of these things that I've mentioned, and I think hopefully as the Holy Spirit's working on you, you're doing this kind of, you know, the things are coming up in your mind as well. All of these things are good. And they can be beautiful and right and even God-ordained and blessed. But how you strive for them makes all the difference in the world. How you do them matters as much as doing them in the long run. Now let me make it maybe a little bit more personal. Clearer maybe, messier maybe, we'll see. We know as Christians that we are to lead with love. That's not up for debate. That should be something that we all have tattooed on our soul, right? That we are compelled by love. That we are to um, be compelled in our relationships with one another. Our desire to serve other folks with love. That love is the hub of a Christian existence. Like we, we could very legitimately say, and I know that Eric has said this, and maybe I've said this before, that if you want to answer the question, why is there something instead of nothing, the Christian answer is love. That God loved, that God extended this affection that he had for himself outside of himself in such a way that now there is something instead of nothing. He created as an expression of this affection that he had. That love, it really is at the center of the Christian God and love is at the center of the Christian experience. And so much so that we could begin to tell ourselves that love always is the will of God in our actions, in our decision making. In a sense, that is a very Christian idea. But saying that love always is the will of God, in a sense, and hang with me here, is being questioned by this temptation, or at least it's challenging. What do you mean by love, right? See, while it's true that an act of love is an act of God, there are acts, there are things done we think in love, that are finally demonic if they are not controlled by higher love. And let me give you an example, and this is something that, again, can be unfortunately uncommon, and, I'm not, and not in liberal churches and not out in the world in just regular, plain, vanilla PCA churches. Adulterous lust, for example, can be justified on the principle of a certain kind of love. Someone will say, you know what, I've been married for so long and I am so unhappy and what God wants for me is to be happy. He wants me to be happy and I'm not happy and I need to get out of this relationship. I know it's been 15 years and I know I said these things, but God divorced Israel, right? There's just this kind of reasoning, this rationale and very often we feel that pull as we hear people saying that, saying, yeah, I know it's wrong, but it seems like God does want you to be happy. And so we will just excuse things that really on their face should, should be wrong, should be challenged. Or there's a kind of um, what, what one commentator calls a lethal liberation. And I think this is very, you're going to hear, I don't know that you'll hear, I hope this will probably be the only sermon you hear, but I'm sure there's a lot of sermons being preached today on freedom, right? And that's a great and biblical concept, but when we talk about freedom, it has to be anchored in the Bible. But there can be a kind of lethal liberation that's seen as loving, where folks are told, out of affection, out of concern for them, to do what makes them feel most authentically them, right? 
do it, make, find the truest, deep down version of yourself and let, let that flag fly. And we're just going to affirm that. And so what we do is very often we just give this tacit agreement to people just being greedy, selfish, self-interested, because that's their most authentic self. And we just want to, you know, give a thumbs up on her. At least we don't want to get in the way and maybe they're going overboard. And obviously this can spread out into the realm, as we've already mentioned, of sexual immorality as well. That we confuse a certain kind of love with a certain kind of happiness. And see, any and all these things, and we could continue to list, can be done or condoned out of a kind of love for others. And very often, what we confuse for love is just an unwillingness to say no, or I'm not sure, or I don't think so. And I'm as guilty. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just admitting this is a struggle for me as much as anyone. But you see, none of these or anything like that are biblical acts of love in their depth, nor... This is the key. Do they actually help people? You see, Jesus knew that in this temptation. Let's go back to the text, which is compelling us in our own thinking and acting and responding uh, to God and others in the world. He knew that it was love for God, that worship of God had to anchor and shape and direct his love for others. Because Jesus was ruled by the conviction that higher than the immediate circumstances that were before him, What had to govern his heart and his affection, the way that he understood people, was the word of God. And was the presence and activity of God mediated through the word to him. So please, as you're thinking about this, also don't let it escape your notice. And our lives as Christians depend on it. That the ruling passion and the commitment that we see in all of Jesus' answers in these temptations is a sense of God of who God is, what God has already done for Jesus, and by extension for us as we are united to Christ. Because all three times, Christ's love for God, expressed by his knowledge of God revealed in Scripture, is what moved him, is what directed how he would love others. That ultimately God is God, and God is the priority. You see, Jesus was able to be a man for others because he was first a man who lived with, loved, and knew God. He was shaped by the word. And the same is true for us as we share in Christ's life by faith. See, we will only seriously be useful to others. And that should be something that is compelling to us as we kind of muddle our way through this life. What can I do for the Lord and what can I do for others? We're only going to be useful to others in our counsel, in our presence, and sometimes just a quiet presence, a being there for them-ness is vital Christian witness. And we'll only be useful in those things in our prayers if we are first those who know, love, enjoy, and experience God first. The Lord first. And you see, doing this, and we'll actually um, land here, but this frees us as we go through our life. It actually gives us some ways to, to, to understand ourselves better and gives us some sense of critique of ourselves that um, enables us to be useful to others. And the first way is this, if our love for God and our commitment to the Lord is our first priority, 
then this will discredit our natural cowardice, right? And I'm just, when you see me up here, see a white flag. I'm naturally a coward. You see, very often, too often anyway, out of a desire for folks to be happy, a sense that we just don't want to meddle. We just want to kind of, you stay behind your fence, I stay behind mine, and we'll celebrate our fences, um, that we just kind of let things go unsaid. And not, not because we're being pushy or judgy or anything like that, but we just let things go unsaid. Words of encouragement sometimes. Words of witness. We have opportunities just to say, not in some kind of weird, fundy way, but just to bear witness to the fact, you know what? I have a hope for the reason that I'm getting through in this world, and it's Jesus. And that's, that's a little weird to other folks, but it's not weird for us. And we, we can step into that. And we don't need to be cowards and we don't need to be afraid because God is real. He really is working in your lives and he can work in the lives of others. And so that commitment to being in the presence of God can defuse, can pour water on that firecracker of our cowardice, right? Fourth of July thing. But then the second thing it does is if we have this love for God and this commitment to, our Lord, to the Lord as our first priority, it also discredits our pride. And why is that important? Because some of you might be hearing, well, what you're saying, Pat, is you need to be just bossy and pushy and you know, and uh, you're just saying that we always know what's right. No. If we're in the presence of the Lord, that actually can kind of mute, or as I said, discredit our pride. We don't always know what is best or right or good in someone's life. That's why I said sometimes it's good just to be present and to listen. Most of our relationship to God is going to be listening, and I I would suggest that to a large degree a lot of what we're going to do for one another is listen. That's not necessarily giving approval, but it is being there and it's being patient, right? And, And sometimes we just need to be, what is it that James says? Slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. And it mutes that pride where we do sometimes want to push ourselves or give advice or critique too quick. Because as we're spending time with the Lord, we realize, man, I am so needy. All that I have, all that I am is because God's grace in the first place. It's not achievement. And that's really how this passage started, isn't it? That Jesus was baptized and then God spoke to him. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. He marked him out as having been shown favor. And ultimately, that's what it's about. Looking to God as God. I just want to leave you this last quote from the Scots Confession. You can look up what that is later. Um, But it says this, and I think this really sums up what these are about, these temptations, and what really our wedge is and our hope, what we lean on in the midst of temptation. We confess and acknowledge to whom alone we must cleave, whom alone we must serve, whom alone we must worship, and whom alone we put our trust is the Lord. He is there. He is present. He ministers to us. Let's pray. Lord, even as we have, by the power of the Spirit, stepped through with Jesus these temptations, heard your word, which is holy, which is powerful and life-giving, 
which is a sword which gets into the joints, the nooks, the crannies of our conscience, our consciousness, looks at our motives, looks at our excuses, looks at ways in which we default. I pray that we would be exposed in such a way that we are not shamed and recoil, but rather that we are seeing how life comes and how life works in temptation and how we press through in this life, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of um, oppression, in the midst of the work of the adversary. I do pray that we would be faithful, even as Christ was faithful, and because he was. And Lord, we receive the ministry that you've sent to us which comes not only by angels, though we don't doubt that is possible and true, but also the ministry and comfort that we get from your word and prayer, and as we will soon experience in the holy meal. Because while we are in the wilderness, you feed us and you sustain us, not with our good works, not with our abstention from bad works, but on the very life of Jesus himself who walked the wilderness on our behalf, that we might stand and enter the promised land. And so it's in Christ's name we pray, and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand with me as we continue our worship, and even as we stand